Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. If you make it look beautiful, you can push the limits of how you're walking. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympic fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm feeling speedy. All right. <laughs> I, I'm moving those hips. You're moving. Did, did that on? Okay, so today I'm really excited about this because we're talking about race walking and race walking is one of those sports that you really do only read about in the mainstream press once every four years because they like to make fun of it. But I thought it was a really cool sport when I actually went out and saw it. Did did it make sense on the tape to you how yes. it was described? Okay, good. Um, yes. And we'll have some video up as well of a few race walkers to show their technique. But yes, today we are talking race walking. And back in October, on October 21, I went to Long Island, New York to watch the USA track and field 30-kilometer race walk national championships and to learn about the sport and its judging. This race had more than just the 30K distance. Walkers were doing 10K, 20K, and 50K as well, which was a very long day on a very chilly and very windy fall morning. And the couple of racers that were there to do the 50K were there to try to make some international qualification time. So that was really cool to see. There was a guy from South Africa. There were some people up from Central America and South America up to really, because it's one of the few meets that they have that they can do this. So it was really cool. And they were really cold. <laughs> they were they were really cold. And, oh, man, I'll, I'll save it for after the thing. But one of the important things about race walking is the fact that it's a technical sport and it is judged. So you have to judge the technique, which is the two main rules in race walking are that you have to have your, your front leg straightened when it hits the ground and one foot must be in contact with the ground at all times. So... 
In order to do that, you need judges, and race-walking judges Gary Westerveld and Marianne Daniel were very gracious with their time in allowing me to come down and chat with them while the race was going on, and I met some other judges too, and we all had uh, nice, long conversations throughout the race about how the sport works. Take a listen. What do you want to know about judging? How to watch, if you're a fan, how do you watch race walking and okay. see what the judges see? What, I, what I you know. have to do is keep in mind it's as seen by the human eye. Right. All right. So now there are some walkers who are going very, very fast. Mm -hmm. And if you took a stop action picture or slow motion, you might see them off the ground. Right. In other words, one foot is not always in contact. Um, right. In, in the old days, it required that you had to, they had to, you had to show visible contact. Now it's, they have to see visible loss of contact. Without that, oh, that's a totally different that'll, change. That allows for a little flight phase. Okay. So they, they get up a little bit. Okay. Now, I know you're recording, yeah. but I've given a red card to 56 because I can see him off the ground. Right. All right. And and that's one of the requirements. The the other requirement is that the leg that when it when the advancing leg hits the ground it has to straighten mm -hmm. and remain straightened until under the vertical right um you can't say straighten the whole time because you'd never get it off the ground it's, <laughs> it's this movement that helps the leg come come forward um we've already had two people disqualified for bent knee walking okay um, and that's it's fairly obvious to see it gets overcalled by some people who really don't know what they're looking for. Um, and in, in some parts of the world, the definition gets translated incorrectly. It really? goes from shall be straightened to in the Spanish speaking countries, a star recta is straight. So now you go to, go to South America and they're looking to see an absolute straightened leg that, and they, they make the call Many times before they even put the foot on the ground. Oh wow! So it's so that oh, they really and so it's the calls are not justified for bent knee, but the two that got DQ'd today probably was they are justified. But we have a panel of judges, so mm -hmm. right now we've got four, five of the best judges in the country who have international judging certification. That's why this race is here. Right? Why we have so many foreign athletes come in? Because you go to other countries, they might have one international judge. In okay. order to make a qualifying standard for the World Championships or the Olympic Games, you need to have a certified course that's approved by the International Federation, and this course is. And you have to have um, a minimum of three international, either level two or level three, level three being the highest level judges. And many international countries or Latin countries don't have that, so they come here to walk, to get a qualifying performance. Um, we've got the judges in this area who, who are among the, the best in the country. So it's a panel. There are eight of us. Mm -hmm. In order to get disqualified, you have to displease four of them. So that's okay. half the judges. To give you an opportunity to correct and to think about what you're doing when you get a third red card, you go into the penalty box. Okay. And depending upon the distance that you're walking, um, now 
you notice anything different with what he's doing? He's jogging. Right? Okay. Now, I've already given him a red card. Okay, so you can't give him another I can't one. give him another one. Okay. No, you can only give him one, and I have to wait for the panel to, to agree, you know, the other judges to, to think that you know, he's illegal. He's on and off. Sometimes he's illegal, sometimes he's not. And okay. They may not see it. Um, and we have a board where the numbers get posted, mm -hmm. and each infraction is the symbol, either, either the squiggly line, which is loss of contact, or the wedge, which is bent knee. The, the tilde sign or, or the wedge um, is bent knee and you'll see there are two athletes have four they're gone already another athlete has three and will be going into the pit lane um, to spend two minutes because okay. he's in the 20k so he it's one minute per uh, every 10 kilometers okay. so he'll spend two minutes in there to think about his technique and then if if they finish before they spend time in the pit lane. We add the time. We add the penalty to that time. Oh, okay. But um, they have to get three red cards before. Yeah, when they get the third red card, they go in the zone in the okay. penalty, um, and that gives a chance to save them. Although what's happened is that we've had two athletes, the, the two that were disqualified, got in the pit lane when the fourth card came in. So oh. you know, we have to wait until the physical card is turned in mm -hmm. before we'll, we'll either disqualify them or, or put them in the, okay. the penalty. Now that's a new system. It used to be three red cards and you were gone. Okay. And so over the course of the last few years, the International Federation has been saying, let's give the athletes a chance to correct. Let's make it more exciting. So now okay. they have the pit lane. And they, okay. um, and it's, and it's kind of like a let them play kind of thing. Let them keep, yeah, let them keep, keep going. Playing. Yeah. Okay. And we, does, did that stem out of like the Sydney controversy? Well, that, or? And, well, that the Sydney controversy got us to the the point that we have an electronic scoreboard now. Okay. Where, and and they have a wireless system internationally where you punch in the card that goes up on the board uh, oh, okay. you know, automatically. We have to wait for this young lady to come pick cards up. Okay. And. Uh, Usually, we could do it with a bicycle, but can you imagine with the wind and a bicycle right. and walkers? And, and, uh, I tried doing something with a, a their text messaging, but they're getting all confused over there. So we're waiting, oh, okay. waiting for the actual hard copy to come okay. in. Um, so if there's a third card, the chief judge is over here. Okay. He will want to verify before anyone gets pulled, and it's it's his job to to. Uh, DQ people. Okay. So now you see that he was good. He was bad before. Now he's legal. Okay. So it depends when, it, how he is when he gets in front of judges. But he's got another 15 kilometers to go. 20 okay. kilometers. Um, are do you think, or are there many instances where where athletes straighten up in front of the judges, or just are the judges too close to each other to really make that difference? I, I don't know if, if there are athletes, there's a very small number of athletes who will deliberately not walk legally. Okay. Um, many years ago, there was a woman who, athlete who was older, mm -hmm. wanted to still be on the, na at the national level, and she would run between the judges. 
and the, and the athletes were complaining, and I was a judge, so I hid on her, which you're not supposed to do. And I see her, the course is a little hilly, and she's running up the hill, all right? I, I stepped out in front of her, I said, you can't do that, and she said, oh, no! But most of them uh, do not try to take advantage of it. They, they could conceivably have a hard time going around a sharp turn. Okay. And so you might see some people who, not wanting to slow down, who will jog around a turn. Okay. And I will show them the yellow paddle, yell at them, show them the yellow paddle, and then if they do it the next time, I go right to a red card. Because most people will deliberately slow down or, or will maneuver around the turn correctly. Okay. And it's those people who don't want to bother. Who deserve to get red card? So now, he's, now he's okay. This race is interesting because you have people of all different levels. Yes. How does somebody get faster? I, I actually run clinics with with uh, high school athletes. Who, mm -hmm. We have it in, in New York State. It's in the high school girls program, and they come to me, and they are so legal. They're so down. Uh -huh. I said, you got to leave the, the, the contact decision to the judges. So you want to get yourself up a little bit. So I teach them to lift their bodies up by driving their arms up behind them, pretending, okay. if they pretend someone's behind them, whack them in the chin with your elbows. As you're walking, you get a little lift to your... To okay. Your, now, if, they can, if they're doing it correctly, they will flow forward and, and almost look like they're floating. Now, conceptually, a boat floats in or on the water. Mm -hmm. It's not off the water, all right? Right. So if you, if you get the floating motion, think of yourself as being on the ground and leave it to the judges to decide if you're off. But if you can get this floating feeling by lifting up a little bit, mm -hmm. you, you will, the, the walker will invariably say it feels easier. Okay. And if it feels easier, they're either they're probably because they're more efficient. So if I teach them how to how to be efficient by lifting their body up a little bit mm -hmm. um, and going point to point and almost floating, they can either go faster or go further. And that's and that's basically how how people will go faster with their walking by by getting getting their body up a little bit and also instead of pushing against the ground when the leg is here, wait until the heel comes off the ground and then push back. So you're because pushing with the toe, with yeah, your, pu with your push ball off, of your push foot. Push off with the ball than, of your foot okay. rather than the, the whole bottom of the foot. And if you push off with the, with the toe, mm -hmm. you're pushing back. Okay. And that great physicist, Fig Newton, now that's a cookie. <laughs> Isaac Newton said for every action there's an opposite equal reaction. Mm -hmm. So you push back against the earth, mm -hmm. the earth pushes you forward. Okay. And so so the, the resultant vector is a, a forward motion. And rather than pushing down here and, mm -hmm. and lifting up, you're now pushing back. You, you've already got your body up, now you're pushing against the ground behind you. And uh, it goes faster. And I would imagine that when you describe it as a floating feeling, is that where like the magic is? Like you capture this That's and you're the just magic. floating? Oh. If you capture that, 
you've got it. If you feel like you're floating, and I tell the, I tell the girls now, it's a beauty contest. Mm -hmm. If you make it look beautiful, you can push the limits of how you're walking, all right? The, the judge, if your technique is, is smooth and efficient, you can push being slightly off the ground more so than someone who's got an ugly technique. And okay. so you make, it, you make it beautiful and away you go. And to me, that's why it's, it's very appealing. You know, in New York, only the girls do it. So it's nice to, the girls can conceptualize making it look beautiful. I said, look, make yourself beautiful. It's a beauty contest. You know, and I, I used to tell them to go do the hair beforehand, <laughs> put your makeup on, and <laughs> smile oh at the God. judges. Oh, but man. I shouldn't be that sexist. So, <laughs> um. so when you're when you're judging, one of the things I was reading is that you're 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 looking for something that looks wrong. I mean, doesn't look like something walking. that's out of the norm. Yeah, that doesn't look like race walking. Mm -hmm. So what if we had a large crowd of people? Mm -hmm. I would look off in the distance and see who looks out of the norm. Mm -hmm. Who looks a little different? And then when they get in front of me, I will look at that person and not okay. the rest of them. Okay. And it's... Uh, when you're just dealing now, with the one off. this young lady who's walking 20K. Beautiful technique. And she, if she goes a little faster, she might come off, but she's, you know, she's just, she's a young walker doing 20K for the first time. Okay. Or second time, but she's going to be faster. As you build endurance, do you get faster? Too? Of course. Okay. Yeah. So that takes, that takes training, going out and putting the miles in, and doing some speed work, what is and, get, and getting away from the dining room table when you don't need to be there. <laughs> I'm guessing up off the couch, too. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. man. What, what is speed work in race walking? What does that look like? Well, it depends on the, the distance. Okay. So, like, if, if it's a beginner who's wants to race 1500 meters or 3000 meters speed work could could be 400s 200s okay all out sprints walking okay you know, young people can identify with that if you're walking um a 20k mm -hmm. your speed work might be repeat one case okay so that's that would be half the distance here or repeat two case um where you would do um for a 20K, if you, your workout could have five or six repeat two kilometers with with a relative short rest. Um, that's faster work. Or even find an incline to walk on and go okay. up this hill with good technique hard. And then when you're tired, turn around and come down the hill fast. Okay. And But I used to, when I was training for... 50 kilometers, I'd go on the track and do 50 400s. Okay, you wow. Know, with, do one every every two minutes, one every three minutes. It would take me two minutes, I'd take a one minute rest and then go on to another one. And, uh, but I was crazy. It's fascinating, I mean, Gary explained it, the sport to me and I got the magic. I got it set, that floating on, uh -huh. on yeah. the ground. I'm like, oh, that's why people like it. That makes me feel, like, oh, I get it now.
As, as a runner, I was a runner mm -hmm. in high school. I had a scholarship to college, so I would, I would run like 3,000 meters up to marathon distance. And the race walk was really quite a challenge. And I got into it like many other athletes mm -hmm. in this country. You, you get injured, so oh, you okay. can't run. But you just do it to, to stay in shape. I actually had a cousin who was a national class race walker, so I knew what it looked like. Okay. And he kind of taught me how to do it while I was recovering from, from some stress factors. But there is that magic in it, and you know, you have to master the technique to be as efficient as possible while still being within the rules, you know, just right. pushing the edge. Right, so to my semi-untrained eye, as a manual, so I feel trained, but so I see number 71, and it almost looks bent knee, but, but the manual is saying, like, look at the quads, because his quads are kind of larger. Uh, well, that's you just know. the cue that we, right. we, you'd use, you know, okay. what's, what's important is in this sector right here, mm -hmm. I see... Straight, straight, here. yeah that his leg is straightening and that right. while if you videoed him mm -hmm. it would probably show him off the ground right it's still I cannot see that visual different I can't see the space between his lead leg and his rear leg off the ground gotcha. so I don't see the visual okay. loss of contact. Just to make sure I have it on tape, let's explain for the listeners again the yellow and yellow paddle and red paddle system. Okay. In order to give the athletes an idea of of what the judges are thinking and looking at, so if an athlete, if a judge feels like an athlete is not completely complying with the definition of the rules. Mm -hmm having the straightened leg and the contact with the ground, you will show them a yellow paddle okay. with the symbol for a bent knee, which looks like a V mm -hmm. laying on its side, or a wavy line, which means they are looking like they're in loss of contact. Okay. If the judge feels like they are in definite violation mm -hmm. of those two rules, he will write up a red card. Okay. The red card will be sent to a recorder, and in some races where they're not using the pit lane, if three red cards come from three different judges on a particular athlete, they will be disqualified. Okay. If they are using the pit lane after the third card, they enter the pit lane, they stay in the pit lane, the required time according Depending to the, the distance. Race, yeah and then they will be released back into the race and if there's a another red card, a fourth red card from a different judge than has given them the first three, then they will be disqualified also. Okay. And this is to keep a level playing field so that mm -hmm. it's first of all so that it's not just in one judge's opinion. Right. Even though it's supposed to be very objective. Sometimes it's a little difficult. So to give them the opportunity so that it's not just one judge, it's three judges. Okay. Opinion. And they say, hey, we're getting right. it from right. many, so many the, opinions. The yellow paddle is just like, hey, watch it. 
mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of on the edge. Okay. You know, this is a little bit of a, a warning, you know. Do you have to write Change down? your form. You have to write down if you're giving them a yellow paddle? You do, okay. but it's, um, an athlete could get a yellow paddle from every single judge, and it doesn't, okay. doesn't, it doesn't add up to anything. Okay. It's just used for our purposes later to see the consistency of the judges. Oh, okay. So that you might have one athlete who's gotten, say, two red cards or or three, and then you see that the others have also given him a yellow paddle, meaning that they think that he's on the edge. And you'll see all different kinds of forms out here. You do. I mean, it's really yep. interesting. And, I mean, the faster race walkers and the Olympians, obviously, sway their hips a lot. And that's... Well, oh, actually, that? swaying the hips is a little bit of a misconception. What they're doing is they're rotating the hips underneath them. So they're not oh, really? swaying them oh, from so side to l- side. So if you look at that athlete, you don't see... This would be inefficient if we were going out from okay, side so to you're side. Putting so your they're rotating them okay. underneath by taking a step. They're one step is usually in front of the other, so it would be their steps would be more or less on a line if you okay. watch the footprints of the step. And the reason for that is it gives you each stride you can extend through your four or five inches more starts okay. so over the course of a long well, distance that adds up to a lot. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. So they're trying to be as efficient as possible so you, you wouldn't want motion being swayed to the side. Okay, so it's really easy. Right. Yeah. In my back. So if you <laughs> if you have if you had a line going mm-hmm. through your hips here and you took a step, your stride is going to be so long. If you take that step and then add the distance of turning your hip just a little bit, so it's really a hip turn. It's really pelvic rotation around the spinal axis. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes you just call it hip turn. Okay. Oh, I really see it on him. Well, he seems to have a bit of a... He's had surgeries and everything okay. so he turns his leg in okay so that's not really efficient not but it's okay. what he but can do okay <laughs> <laughs> and he's in his late 70s wow okay so but i also see, see somebody it here coming through that's a little bit more powerful and yeah you can see that so if you were to put a mark on the uh hip bone mm-hmm. you would see that mark going back and forth okay really like an ellipse okay almost some people are better at being more efficient and some people have just learned how to do it this gentleman was a runner before and okay then stopped running and gained some weight so now he's he's trying race and walking is easier on the body it's or easier because, well, when you're running, you come down with four or five times your own body weight. Right, okay. When you're just pedestrian walking, just regular walking, mm-hmm. you come down with about two times your body weight. But because of the way you land on your heel and distribute the weight when you're race walking, you only come down with about one and a half times your body weight. 
So it's a lot less jarring through the knees, through the hips, through the spine and the neck. But it takes, um, it takes a bit of effort to do the form. So, and that has advantages if you're using it for fitness, because if you have a, a runner and a race walker going along at the same speed, mm -hmm. the race walker would be burning more calories because they're operating on a more pendulum motion okay. rather than a spring motion. And huh. Because that's less efficient, you're burning more calories. Huh. And it uses, I always tell people that when I do clinics for fitness, that each mile of, of race walking is like doing 50 crunches because it uses your lower abdominals. You okay. have to, to you need your core muscles to drive. Okay. Um, what, is, what is cross training like? Since most of us are runners, mm -hmm. we tend to run in our off days. You might mm -hmm. do, so say you do three or four hard race walking workouts. Okay. Uh, your easy day might be an easy run of five okay. or ten or fifteen miles, depending on what distance you're training for. I mean, you could use anything for cross training. You have to have a little bit more upper body strength for race walking. So, uh, doing some upper body weight work is important. Now, here you see somebody coming through that their arms are going a little bit too much to the side. So they're not coming through. You want to be crossing the midline a little bit with your hand, but okay. not excessively so that your elbow is out. Because that's inefficient. Right. Okay. It's throwing weight out to the side. Okay. Interesting. The, uh, Ecuadorians and some of the athletes from Puerto Rico are, uh, of course, they're top-level athletes, so they're going to be well-trained cardiovascularly as well. Um, what kind of injuries do people get that are typical? Well, I can tell you a little bit about that because I'm a massage therapist and I've, oh, I've right, often been right, a massage right. therapist for some of the race walking teams. Typically, hamstring tightness is, okay. is uh, pretty prevalent. And then injuries to the piriformis muscle in the glute. Okay. Uh, because of the straightening of the knee. Some people hyperextend, so that puts a little bit of stress on the insertion of the hamstring okay. into the knee. But other than that, it, it should, theoretically, it should be a lot less injuries than running because you're not pounding. Right. Well, many people think, oh, doesn't that hurt your hips? But that's not necessarily a, a right. problem because, right, again, you're, you're rotating, rotating underneath. You're not swinging out from okay. side to side. Yeah. And it's been in the Olympics since 1904. Yeah, I know. I was, yeah. reading, I was reading about A lot of people in the U.S., you know, don't, don't, they don't see it, so they don't right, know what it is. Right, they don't think about it it's for not, four years. It's only yeah. in the high schools in New York and in Maine. So and only in a few colleges, of which they do give some scholarships for, though. Oh, really? There are some college scholarships for it. 
backwards point scoring for the um, some of the colleges in the Midwest. Okay. It's it's interesting because yeah, it's got to be very hard to get into if you don't have access. Right. So you you know uh, uh, our ideal plan would be to have it introduced to young kids so that they have a chance to try it out and you know, if they then want to do this when they're older at least they've had some exposure to it. In uh, places like uh, Mexico or used to be many years ago the Scandinavian countries were very good in race walking and they would have club programs where they would teach little tiny three or four year olds how to oh, race wow. walk and they pick it up pretty quickly because all they say is just do what I'm doing okay right <laughs> they show them that way Uh, we're going to try in Connecticut to try to get it into the high school. So say, when, what is the process of becoming a judge? Uh, you have to first pass a, in your association, there are something like uh, 58 associations, so some of them align with the states and some of them include Oh, okay. a few more so states, or like California okay. is broken up into, right. okay. I think, at least three different associations. In your association, you would um, become an apprentice to a judge, and then shadow judge, mm -hmm. like many sports allow, and then take a, an overall track and field test, and then down the line, once you've done so many races and track meets officiating, then uh, you can take a specific race walking test. So you, okay. you become an association race walk judge and then you would do that for maybe three years or so and then you could become a uh, area regional judge mm -hmm. and then perhaps apply to be a national judge. And that's further written tests and uh, you have to show a resume mm -hmm. in which you've officiated a number of, of races, not only in your own area, but that you've traveled outside, maybe gone to several different associations and okay. judged there. Okay. And then they would, they would kind of take a look at your record, make sure that you're not a judge that gives, you know, five times as many red cards as others. The cool thing I think about race walking is because because not all that many people do it, mm -hmm. those that are involved in it understand each other well and there's wonderful camaraderie and mm -hmm. uh, many of us who were athletes in our younger days know that you have to have judges in order for the races to go on so devote our time and energy to judging and standing mm -hmm. out here and freezing <laughs> <laughs> because it just provides a service so that we can have these kind of races and especially uh, we have um, 
people coming from other countries because often there they don't have the uh, level of judges in which they can use a race to qualify or qualify and get performance points in order to get into the world championships or okay. Olympics. When did the, the pit lane come into being? Initially, about six years ago, they decided that it would be a good idea for the junior under 18 uh, athletes to mm -hmm. sort of give them like a second chance, okay. which I didn't agree with, but <laughs> I felt <laughs> like in a long jump, if you're, if you're officiating a long jump and right. an athlete steps over the, the board, uh -huh. you know, they would get a foul called right. on them and three fouls or each foul, you know, they're not going to measure. I felt like all the sports should be treated equally that way, but uh, they decided that the pit lane would be a good thing and initially just for the junior athletes and mm -hmm. now it's for the open athletes okay. as well. I can see it in terms of when they have a international team competition. Mm -hmm. So oh, sometimes so an athlete's disqualified and then the team can't have a, uh, you know, can't finish as a team. So I could see that, but I cannot see it being used for world championships and Olympic games. One thing I was reading about was electronic, the idea and concept of electronic sensors in the shoes. Yes, Is that yes, still being talked about? Yeah, they, it's, uh, it's being tested. They've created okay. it already. It's being tested. I don't see how they can get 100% reliability for this, though. So, um, it might come into being. Okay. But um, I think it's going to have a lot of problems, difficulty. I would rather see the judges be more educated to detecting loss of contact and really seeing like some some athletes appear to have a bent knee but they upon hitting the ground they use the ground to straighten their knee okay so it is it, within that, the rules that, would be that technically straight. A, the leg must be straightened so it's okay. an action doesn't uh, say straight the leg must okay. be straightened so it can be an action Oh, that's interesting. So yep. that that's yep. discerning that little bit, right, right. and how does a sensor discern that? Well, it wouldn't do any. It wouldn't be able to detect. Right. Any, oh, so that's true. That's true. Anyhow, it's just going to detect right. loss of contact. Well, <laughs> and the other thing I think about with electronic sensors is, what happens if everybody everybody starts going off because there is a little bit of loss of contact that the eye can't see. But right, the, but you know. they would have to build into it a tolerance. So okay. they would they would build into it, you know, they they think the human eye can start to detect things when it's slower than thirty milliseconds. Okay. So if they built that into it it would be should be pretty much what the eye can see and allow for some of that uh, invisible loss of contact. Okay. <laughs> but it could potentially slow the athletes down. Uh, and 
there's the possibility of, of uh, electronic transmission problems. Right. And I would hate to think any athletes would tamper with it, but who knows? Right, right. Yeah, they, they're going to be giving these insoles. They can, they're allowed to cut them to fit their shoe. Um, but, you know, it's a radio frequency oh, signal. Oh, okay. So, okay. I believe one could interfere with it. Um, Perhaps they would have something that if there was no signal coming from it, you know, they would, they would check them beforehand. I don't okay. know. Do you find that the, you give more infractions as the race goes on and people get more fatigued, or do they? Uh, have, or does it initially, initially, I give most of my calls initially because I'm looking at an athlete making a decision, and usually, you know, whatever, and sometimes because they're going a little bit too fast in the beginning, mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll give my yellow paddle. Try, you try to give a yellow paddle before you give a red card. Right. Uh, if somebody is being totally outrageous with their form and mm -hmm. uh, in definite violation, you can go right to a red card. But they, they like you to warn the athlete before you give them a red card. So uh, my, my observation is that initially I give a lot of of yellow paddles and then I might give my red cards and then in a long race like this yes you start to see some athletes start to fatigue and typically that might be the older athlete that starts to bend their knee a little bit mm -hmm. so that's what you see there you know in the world championships or Olympic games in a 50k race mm -hmm. you might see some fatigue usually not too much in a 20k okay what body types are best for mm. because i do see like short sure. people and tall people yep. here a wide variety of, of course not having any extra weight right. is important but having a stronger upper body so you know I, a lot of people think, oh, somebody tall has a mm -hmm. longer stride, right? And therefore, it's easier for them. But mm -hmm. they have to move those longer legs, the distance. So there's it. It's uh, you know, it doesn't give them an advantage to be okay. taller. Typically, you find the, the best race walkers have incredible core strength. Okay. To be able to drive their hips forward, tend to see slightly longer torsos okay so if they have a long torso and you know the leg length doesn't really matter that much okay does it like that the longer torso then can give you more force right more core it just gives a little bit more leverage but you know we see great race walkers you know, tall and short just that we've noticed that that a slightly longer torso seems to be, I don't know whether they're scientifically. Right, 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 that's, but it's interesting. Uh, quite a few of us have that observation. And you have to be mentally tough in the way that you have to keep the form over the distance. So that's, that's its uh, 
that's its challenge to be able to, to keep the form right so you have to have keep turning over right and you quickly. have to so that that requires a lot of mental endurance right, too right so what do people do to train for that uh, just do segments of longer walks you know okay in their, in their workouts so they might do well here's something interesting so if you have a marathoner training you know, they're training because they're running and obviously going faster uh, training time is not going to be as much as a 50k going mm -hmm. slightly longer at 31 miles it's going to have to put in so a 50k race walker might have to put in a four or five hour workout for their long one once okay. a week whereas a marathoner it might be two or three hours so it's oh a little wow. bit okay a little bit longer time that they have to spend so you have to be able to have that time off, and oftentimes people with uh, you know nine to five jobs. It, right, it's, you go it's a little difficult. A yeah, nine to five. Yeah, and then you have five to hours of walking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and go right to bed. Yeah. For you, what's the toughest aspect of judging? Initially, it was judging the very same people that I competed against. Oh wow! Okay, I, and I, I thought it was going to be mm -hmm. even more difficult than it was. But what I've been able to do is just look at the knees and the feet mm -hmm. and make a decision. And then sometimes I would look up and go, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, well, "I don't want to do this," <laughs> but you know, you know that you have to in your position to be fair. The hardest thing is standing out in the cold yeah, for long hours. Uh, and not really getting to talk to the other judges, which is kind of why we do it, you know, we, right. we bond together as officials too. And uh, we certainly enjoy our time beforehand and then usually afterwards we mm -hmm. go out to eat together and, and uh, you know, we have our social time. But it's a little lonely. Yeah, I can see. I can see that. You're kidding. talking to me made my <laughs> half hour pass by very quickly. How long does it take for somebody to develop their judging eyes? Mm. And I would imagine that varies by person as well. But like when, when you're talking about becoming a judge, like... Some never do. <laughs> <laughs> very true. <laughs> uh, I, I would say within a couple of years, you know, okay. you, you get to know, you know, you can pick up somebody coming at a distance and know, mm -hmm. okay, that person's off, and then you confirm it when they're in your zone. How it all, just like mm -hmm. doing the roller derby thing, you know, starting out in a position where you can observe how other things are done, mm -hmm. because sometimes what's actually in the rule book and the procedures which they actually use are a little bit different. Okay. Not 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 that they're not that they're in total opposition of what's mm -hmm. in the rule book, but they just go about doing it, you know, maybe a slightly different way. So learning how it all flows together might take a little bit more time. What do you love about judging? 
I guess to still be a part of the sport at mm -hmm. a high level. Okay. So I competed in the World Championships and Pan American Games, to the Olympic Games. I was injured four times in a row. Oh. But um, being a part of it, watching watching the athletes up close and uh, you know, seeing their their zest for for pushing the, the limit, mm -hmm. uh, knowing kind of knowing what they have to do to get there, and, um, and then the camaraderie amongst mm -hmm. all the judges. It's a it's a small tight family. Right down in in Buenos Aires, we all would go to dinner together, mm -hmm. go sightseeing together. Oh, nice. A bunch of little puppies. <laughs> <laughs>Thank you so much, Gary and Marianne, and also to Reggie Weissglass and Ron Daniel, who the two of them didn't make this edit, but they were very gracious with their time and with sharing information with me. And our bronze level patrons and above who donate $5 a month or more will get to hear a nice long chunk of that deleted audio, which will include the judging structure, the per diems that the judges get at international events, and one of the awards that the IAAF gave out in 1989, which today we would consider a little bit scandalous. So if you're not already a bronze, silver, gold, or committee member level patron, join the club today at patreon.com slash oldmfever. When I went back to listen to the tape, because it was three hours of tape, so it did take me a long time to go through, I felt the cold and the chill and the wind again. <laughs> See, I remember this day very clearly because I was also walking that day, but at a charity walk. Yes. That was right on the beach. Also cold, windy. Oh, my God. That was a rough day for those guys because I remember doing our little charity walk. It's not even a race. And mm -hmm. I couldn't catch my breath because of how cold it was. And these people are doing 50K yes, like that? It, yes. And it would take a few hours. And they're, and they're doing it in tank tops and little racing shorts. Wow. Which is, to me, insane. And there was this one poor girl from a uh a latin american country because her uh her whole team with her was uh spanish speaking and she was wearing pretty tight short racing shorts and her legs started rubbing <gasps> and she just her inner thighs started bleeding after a while and they she like would have to stop and they give her some cream to try to put on it and and alleviate it but it was I felt so, so bad for her. She just looked miserable after a while. Oh, my God. And that's going to hurt for days. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, that poor thing. But I was looking into a little bit of the history mm -hmm. of race walking. And I don't know why I thought race walking had come in to the Olympics in, like, the 80s. No. Old, oh, no. Old sport. It was in 1908. Yeah. It's been around a long, long time. I know. And that surprised me that I just didn't realize because no one talks about it. They always make fun of the athletes and their swinging hips. But these guys are serious. They are serious. And the technique, once I figured out the technique and could see it and they described it to me and I could see that it wasn't just you're swinging your hips back and forth, but you're really rotating them in a circle, the motion felt 
easier to do. And you can feel this like walking on air bit that I talked about with Gary. And that was when like that aha moment came and I thought, oh, that's what makes the sport really cool. And when you do it and you do it right, it feels fantastic. It's like the swing that yeah. we read about in with the rowers. Yes, exactly. When you, exactly. When you do something so well and you're so in tune with your body, that's the magical moment. Yes. Oh, it just it sounded fantastic. And the fact that it doesn't put as much pressure on your body and your joints why aren't more people doing this? I mean, we talk about some of the walkers out there. They'd be going, oh, there's that guy. He's been doing this for like 30 years and he's racing, still racing. I mean, maybe so, he's doing so shorter distances. So we could distances. start this now. We could start this now. I walk a lot. Right? Marianne will give us lessons. She already said. She, she, she was, I wish I could have gotten. Oh, I know. She I was, she was lovely. That day because she, she sounded lovely. lovely. Yes. And all you officials, you're all alike. <laughs> matter the sport that's something i've learned all officials have the same sort of banter and the same <laughs> questions and the same love of your stopwatches i did like those paddles i know you did yeah it was very because... interesting when i saw the board with everybody's numbers on it for the who needed or who had had red cards already and they had the little pit lane or what they're calling they're trying to call it now i think the penalty zone so you'll you'll hear those two terms interspersed when you watch a race walking race. Um, but yeah, it was it was really cool. But that was, uh, but uh, thank you to actually I want to say thank you to the listeners who suggested this as a topic because it was something that's been on our list and it did take us. I <clears throat> I do apologize that it did take us so long to get to, but that was a lot of fun to be able to go and go and see a race. I'm going to, I will say, I'm going to look for that rotating hip now. Yeah. Now I'm going right. to watch that technique so differently. Right. It's amazing. Um, moving on to our team Olympic fever update. I'm not saying it because it's getting annoying. You're not going to say it? No, because I was listening back and I'm like, I'm annoyed listening to myself. <laughs> okay. It's tofu. <laughs> Congratulations to our Team Olympic Fever ice dancer, Charlie White. He and Merrill have been honored. They're, there's going to be a, the Davis and White Global Excellence Award now given out from, uh, from U.S. figure skating. And it's based on a formula that includes placement and points at the U.S. Championships and World Ranking Points from designated international championships events. And this will be given to the senior ice dance team with the highest combined point total. It's really exciting. It is. And this week is the United States figure skating champion. And Charlie and Merrill are the honorary chair people. Yes, it's very exciting. Did you see? On, I don't know. I saw on Twitter that Merrill accidentally told her Uber, gave her Uber uh, an address for a Little Caesars pizza place instead of the arena. The Little Caesars <laughs> arena. Oh, well, it's very cold in Detroit, and Meryl has been in California, so she may be suffering oh, a little brain freeze. There you go. There you go. Yeah. But yes, at at the U.S. Championships this week, our friend... Nate Bartholomew hey. and Deanna Stellato, they're competing. Yes. 
Yes. So they're going to be competing. Uh, short program is Thursday evening, and that will air in the U.S. on NBCSN at 5 p.m. Eastern. And then the free program will be on NBC on Saturday afternoon, starting at 1.30. I'm so excited for them. I know. I just want them to skate beautifully. I don't care how, I mean, I care how they do, but I don't care how they do. Right. I just want them to skate clean because I know that's, that's the goal. So good luck to them. Yes. And if you happen to be in Aspen this weekend, our freestyle skier, Devin Logan, will be at Rag and Bone, which is a store, on Friday for an event benefiting the climate change advocates protect our winters. And we've retweeted the invitation so you can check out our Twitter feed at Olim Fever for more details. And then this is cool. Brianna Decker is going to be participating in the 2019 NHL Skills Competition this weekend at the NHL All-Star Game in San Jose. And there's going to be a bunch of Team USA women there participating in this. It sounds really cool. I'm hoping to be able to catch that. Well, we'll be watching it in my house because you're a hockey hockey. house. I'm my hockey house. It's okay to be a hockey house. I know. Because this weekend, it's more not a football house, temporarily. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, and last but not least, congratulations to Samantha Achterberg, who won first place at the USA Modern Pentathlon Qualifier number 2, which has given her a spot on the World Cup team. Excellent. Very excited for her. She posted a picture of herself in her swimsuit from the swim portion, and all I could think of was, oh, I hope she's not cold. she's not cold but you know because we're so cold right 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 it's been very very cold in new england so i just assume that everyone is cold (laughs) so i will enjoy watching the figure skating because i'll be all nice and cozy and wrapped up and just yeah it's gonna be a big weekend jackie wong yes he will be there is there he's covering it so yeah it's been a crazy little couple of weeks for him because there were Canadian nationals and Russian yep. nationals and now U.S. nationals. So And Europeans are this week as well. Wow. So he's got a lot of... Oh, that's right, because Javier uh, Fernandez is going Retired. for his last title. So. Yeah. so I don't know if Jackie is going to be sleeping for the next several days. I don't think so. Probably. So maybe I'll send him some coffee in Detroit because he's go. going to... There you go. There you go. Hey, don't forget that one of the easiest ways to support the show is by shopping on Amazon. And the next time you need to get something from Amazon, stop by our website first. That's olimfever.com and click on the Amazon banner. We'll get a little commission from your purchases, which really helps us put together more cool Olympic fever things as we get closer to Tokyo 2020. And thank you so much for your support. And I think on that note, we'll wrap it up for this week. And we'll catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at olimfever. And you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. And all you officials, you're all alone.